Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Genesis chapter 3. We're in a series in Genesis that brings us now to the fall the fall of humanity. We're we're seeking to answer throughout the entirety of the fall the issue of provenance. Where did we come from? How did things get started? And today, we're going to look at what many would call, and I would agree, the most important chapter in the Bible. Let's go first of all to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and I'm going to read the first 13 verses of Genesis 3. We'll cover the entirety of the chapter both today and next week. Here's how Genesis 3 begins. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked." And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Had you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. As we look at the fall of humanity, we're going to look at it in two parts. Today, we're going to talk about sin's course of deception. Sin's course of deception. And I want to begin by asking you a question. What would you say is the most powerful act of evil that has affected the world? The most powerful act of evil that has affected the world. So often when a question like that comes up, we immediately lean in our thinking to those who were great evil leaders, the uh, uh, Genghis Khan, the Adolf Hitlers of the world. We think of some of the atrocities that have taken place uh, across the world. But what I want us to propose today is something that I would suspect none would be quick and maybe many would not even conceive of to respond in simply saying this, my sin. My sin. You see, friends, the most powerful act of evil 
is the simplest act of rebellion against God's glory and disobedience to his command. And the less that we are prepared to acknowledge and confess this, the less we stand in full agreement with what Genesis 3 is teaching us today. How important is this chapter in the Bible? Well, from a biblical perspective, to fail to understand Genesis 3 is to miss the root of all evil, of all death and all of its causes, to miss the root of all pain and to miss the root of all suffering in the world. Listen, friends, the greatest hope of Christianity is this. There is nothing that anyone will ever and has ever faced in life that the gospel doesn't fully and adequately address with hope, light, truth, and salvation. But we must enter into the darkness in order to understand how bright the light of Jesus Christ truly is for us. We cannot understand the entirety of the Bible without accurately understanding Genesis 3. Why? Because if we don't believe Genesis 3, really the rest of the Bible is unnecessary. If Genesis 3 is not true, we don't need the rest of the Bible. But if Genesis 3 is in fact what we hold it to be, true historical fact, then in fact, We have a greater need for the rest of the Bible every moment of every day. As I've already referenced, Genesis 3 is a real historical record. It is neither a fable, it is not a fairy tale, nor is it some kind of a mythical story. For all the problems of every human and the whole universe find their origin in this chapter. And until you believe what Genesis 3 teaches... Your worldview, the way you perceive everything in the world and everything that occurs in the world will always be skewed in this ever-constant searching to interpret the voids of understanding. Friends, Christians are not without a way to address and answer one of the greatest barriers to faith in Jesus Christ. Why do evil and suffering exist? God tells us why it exists as he reveals to us where it originated from and how it shows itself today. Therefore, I agree with the proposal that Genesis 3 is, in fact, the most important chapter in the whole Bible. And I hope and pray our time in this chapter will be helpful for you, will be encouraging to you. I pray that it will be enlightening to those areas where you have not yet fully embraced or believed God and his word for what he says about sin and its origin and its full fruition in your life. And in believing that, come to look to Jesus Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. I want us to see today and next week that all are sinful by nature because of the fall of one man, Adam. We'll look at that in more detail next week. But in love, God seeks us out to save us through Jesus. We are desperately and hopelessly lost without Christ. But because of Christ, there is a hope in which we have. And so I hope our study today specifically identifies where it is that temptation meets you in your life 
and what it tells you so that you can flee to God for covering in Jesus. Over this week and next week, we're going to look at four moves, four moves of our fall into total depravity. And today we'll begin with the first two of those four moves. And we'll see this, that temptation to sin always follows a familiar course to naked shame and ruthless blame. But God in love seeks us out to save in Jesus. Let's go immediately to verse one and let's look at the first move. The first move is simply this, that temptation twists God's truth to deceive. Temptation twists God's truth to deceive. Prior to now, everything we've studied in the first two chapters of Genesis has demonstrated and revealed to us a perfect world. But here we will see creation turn itself upside down. And we find the story where the serpent approaches the woman to tempt and to deceive her. Now, we don't know exactly which creature the serpent was. I'm holding out that it was a snake because I hate snakes. I feel like it was, but that doesn't really matter. It was a serpent, nonetheless, one of God's creatures that had been inhabited by Satan himself. And he approaches the woman to tempt her and to deceive her. And what he does first and foremost is he questions her about what God said. But he gives it a subtle twist so that he makes more of a statement than he does an inquiry about what he wants to know. In other words, he's subjecting upon her more than he is asking of her. And he says this, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? If you look at what God said in Genesis 2 when he gave the command, he said you can eat of every tree in the garden except for one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when the serpent comes, he twists that to say, you shall not eat of any tree. Why? Because he's already beginning to place within her heart and mind suspicion against God. You see, the serpent's question has no interest in what God said, but rather in confusing the woman about what God had said. That's what temptation does to us each time, friends, when it comes to us. It twists God's word to speculate about the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of his word for us. And notice where it is that the serpent meets the woman. God gave them any tree, not only in the garden, but beyond the garden as we looked at, that they may see as good for food and to take it and to enjoy it. But of the one tree that God had commanded them not to eat, that is where the serpent chose to mount his attack. He questions her about God. He comes to her and he nests himself among the, not among the good blessing. He didn't want a reminder of what God had done. He didn't want a reminder of God's provision. He didn't want to remind her of the abundance of the pleasure of godliness. Rather, he lurks at the single point of human option and human opinion. He rested at the line between trust and obeying God's divine command and believing in the free will and the determination of the human 
spirit. You see, Satan chooses his point of attack at the position of opportunity for your disobedience. If you remember the last sermon of Genesis 2, we talked about how the tree was not some kind of magical infection because of the product of its fruit, but rather the purpose of the tree we see in Genesis 2 was the opportunity that it presented. It's not just a venomous fruit. Far more than that, it's a venomous opportunity. And yet that is what Satan draws his point of tack up on, the opportunity for rebellion and disobedience. He draws her attention to the forbidden. He dismisses the abundance of God's provision. He cloaks his intention with the inquiry to appeal to her own natural appetite and to begin to ever so slowly raise her curiosity in what might be what could be. You see, the further he can take her out of the abundance of God's provision and isolate her around personal opportunity, the greater opportunity he has to deceive. And that's where he executes his attack by subtle speculation and twisting God's word. The Bible tells us like a roaring lion, Satan prowls seeking someone to devour. And if you study lions, they don't roar from afar off. They sneak up ever so warily. And the roar only comes at the last instant so that if you hear it, you freeze in fear and you don't even know it because you've already been devoured. That's exactly what Satan is doing here in the garden. Friends, Satan is always an enemy. He's never a friend, nor is he ever friendly. His intentions are always and only to harm you as he steals from you, as he kills you, as he destroys destroys you and his tactics always attack under cloaked speculation lies and accusation about the goodness about the provision and about the glory of God why because every temptation is an opportunity to steal God's glory you see friends temptation is never a mere chance encounter it is an intentional act of war to steal God's glory and to take it for one's self. Now the woman commits two subtle acts here. Errors in her reply that actually serve to expose her to the deception that Satan has for her. First of all, she diminishes God's provision by generalizing God's command. Let me tell you what it does when we generalize the word of God without clarity and specificity, to know God's word or to have a vague understanding of God's word, it exposes you to greater deception because she got very near to what God had actually said. But friends, every lie has an element of truth. It's just not the whole truth. And so she diminishes God's provision by generalizing. Second of all, she exaggerates God's command by adding to it. And in fact, ending up making it something, in fact, that God did not say at all. 
But these subtle shifts that are baited, if you will, by the evil one, they are a shift and an addition that may not seem like much because in our own lives we tell ourselves it's just not that big of a deal that I don't know exactly what God's word says. I've got a general idea that I can operate from. Or we tell ourselves that I wouldn't be tempted in that way, so I must be okay. But in temptation, these two are always a one-way path fully into deception and into sin. These are the superpower self-reactors capable of rationalizing and justifying any sin that we so desire to enter into and we may start out completely opposed to it yet as these two chemical reactors within us continue to fire in the electrical synapses of our brain, we end up realizing, hey, it's probably not that bad. God didn't really mean what he said after all. We find ourselves where Eve was. Friends, anytime you make light of God's provision for you, when you stand in the wilderness and the forest of his provision, anytime you make light of his gift to you, this is good, but it could have been better. I could have used it this way, or I could have had one of these models. While at the same time you're exaggerating his command upon you. You know, it's really heavier than it needed to be. All he really needed to say was this, and I would have been fine with it. God becomes smaller. Temptation becomes stronger. As you distance yourself from him and his word to turn and go your own way, which leads to sin. Now the serpent, now recognizing the woman's vulnerability, mounts his attack. He comes out and full-scale denies God's truth with a full-scale lie. She's prepared for it at this point because the, the seed of curiosity has already been planted and the temptation to deception has already made itself present. And he makes God like a man by accusing him of something, by tempting man with the deception of every sin that, that in some way we can become like God. He said, God, God doesn't know that. What God knows is on the day that you eat of this, you'll become like God. And friends, I'm going to tell you, when someone's already leaning in that direction, it takes a very light encouragement just to send them on in fully that direction. Life is never more vulnerable to temptation than when the mind and the heart are no longer guarded by the truth of God's word. And a lie never leads toward God. And an accusation always strips our wants and our desires for God. That's what suspicion does. It lessens the, the, the depth. It lessens the degree to which we desire God. And in the lessening of that degree, it elevates the temptation that the evil one is placing within us. You see, the problem is not the serpent's overwhelming skill but rather the ever so slight feeding of Eve's pride. It's not that the serpent had to completely destroy God, but in leading her a little further away from all that he is and all that he had done, he just had to make God look a little smaller and that temptation look a little brighter. And it's like if you put your thumb up and cover the mountain that's in the horizon, you begin to believe more about that thumb as you focus on it than is really true and less about that mountain. 
you begin to see that temptation here and forget about the God who is there. The farther we stray from God's truth, the more susceptible we become to deception by Satan's lies and accusations that appeal to our self-pride. Now exposed and vulnerable, the woman has a new revelation. Satan's subtle tactics led her to see the world for her now instead of for God. The fruit of the forbidden tree that was promised to satisfy every knee and the fruit of that tree promised to satisfy the longing of her life by providing all that the world had to offer. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, yea, all in one tree. Once Satan lie was most appealing, she had nothing left to do but simply to believe and partake. So she took the fruit and she ate it, and then she gave some to her husband, and he ate it with her. You see, the woman's mistake is that she stopped listening to the creator, and she began to listen to another creation or creature. Once we stop listening to God, we become vulnerable to every lie the world tells us. And it's every lie tells us that we can be God-like. We so often convince ourselves that we're fine because we don't believe every lie. We actually recognize some lies and we see some deception. The problem is, is not that we give in to every lie that is told to us. The problem is we give in to the one that is most appealing to us. And that's what we're blind to, friends. That's what we're blind to. Their action resulted in immediate exposure, but not exposure as the lie told. Immediately, it says, their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. Friends, let me tell you something. They had always been naked. And if you weren't here when I preached on the ends of Genesis 2.25, let me repeat my favorite verse in the Bible. When it speaks of marriage and it speaks of intimacy, of relationship, of life, they were both naked and unashamed. That is a beautiful picture of what God intends for us to live without reserve, to live completely exposed and yet without any shame before him and and even before others. They had always been naked, but now sin told them something about their state that God had put them in that was not true and it made them believe something about the God that put them there that in fact was not true as well. And this is where every temptation to sin leads you in its fullness. Not only to believe something about yourself that is deceived, but to believe something about God that is completely false and wrong. The immediate exposure from their sinful act did not verify Satan's lie that God was not good. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. It exposed him as the liar that he is. Immediately, their fear made them react and try to cover up what they had done. You see, sin's full effect stands display. The lie is exposed and the sinner is condemned, living in the decay of their fear. Now, temptation to sin begins by the twisting of God's truth to change the narrative that we tell ourselves from God's goodness to our God-likeness. And that is the lie that temptation sells to us. 
in its varied forms and its varied manners to lead us into sin. And once we see the world as for us and for our good, we are open to believing whatever the lie it offers to us. But every lie leads to the same place. For sin manifests itself in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we act, or in the way through any of those manners we omit the good that is from God alone. Friends, this first move that we see to our full depravity is that temptation is the one path with only a one-way end to fear, to guilt, to shame, and the condemnation of sin. Now, when we come to this point, we see immediately the second move, beginning in verse 8. And we see in this second move how it is that sin's dark knowledge fuels shame and ruthless blame. Shame and blame. Upon sinning, Adam and Eve immediately experienced the first that no other person on earth would ever experience, the plunge from perfection to full depravity. It's a long fall. We've not had to take that, but we live under that. God pursues them, though, but sin's lie confesses and confuses to them out of their fear and their shame and their guilt. And so what do they do? But they hide from God. They hear the sound of God coming through the garden. And before they can even sing, they run to hide from them. Now hear me, not only had nothing changed about them except for their knowledge about their situation, nothing had changed about God except for what? What they knew about themselves now was projected onto God and their understanding of God came from a broken reality of their own understanding of self. In other words, they saw God like they saw themselves. And because they were shameful and because they were condemned, God must be the condemner and one to run from. Nothing had changed about their daily routine. There was no instant or evidence of which they could convince themselves that God was out to get them, only to come meet them. The only thing that changed, that drove them away from God, was how they now thought about, and ultimately what they believed about Him. Think about that for a moment, friends. That which drives away from God has no bearing of reality of who he is. Only the bearing of deception of our own state and what we come to believe about him because of it. Sin made them doubt and disbelieve God. So God calls to them, where are you? Adam and Eve come out from hiding and they tell God they heard him in the garden and were afraid because they were naked. And God asks, who told you you were naked? Who told you this and who made you believe that it was in fact a bad thing? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And immediately Adam, trying to cast off his shame, blames God by pointing blame at Eve. And then Eve reciprocates in her husband's own action to blame the serpent. And the first thing that Eve gets right is this. It's her confession that she was deceived by the serpent, but she had no idea what to do about that deception. Yet she relentlessly did everything in her own power along with Adam to try and cover it up 
to cast off the shame that it created. You see, friends, the shame of sin is the most uncomfortable self-loathing that causes us to seek out a way to rid ourselves of it and hopelessly blaming it on others in an attempt to cast it off of us. It may be other people. It may be another situation. Sometimes we just go to the source itself and said, the devil made me do it. I remember my sister she used to be in children's ministry, and there was one specific child that they were having a lot of trouble with in classes and really disruptive. And she pulled that child out into the class, out into the hallway of the classroom one Sunday morning, and she asked that child, she said, What is wrong? And he said, Oh, Miss Laurie, I got the devil in my heart. There's a lot of wisdom in that, friends. But let me tell you something. The Bible never allows us to cast off our responsibility for our sin onto Satan, onto anyone else, or anything else. We and we alone, each one of us before God, are responsible for our sin. And that shame is the most uncomfortable self-loathing Isn't it interesting that the the temptation to sin promises the heights of pleasure, the heights of goodness, and the heights of glory. And all that it produces is the depth and the darkness of self-loathing, shame, self-hate. Now let me ask you something. When we think about they heard the sound of God in the cool of the garden. I, I like that because it's interesting to me how familiar senses trigger memories. Is it not? you think about this certain songs remind us of periods of our life or certain smells maybe recall places or people or experiences or memories I mean I'm going to tell you I survived the love life of junior high because of air supply in Chicago man they salved this broken heart night after night I'd put the headphones on and roll around in front of this massive stereo just listening allowing them to soothe the pain that someone else had created by disappointing Lane. You remember these. And what we recall by the triggering of our senses exposes to us not only what occurred or even who was present. Surely we see faces, names, we remember actions and words. But more than that, it exposes what it is we believed about those people. What it is we believed about those practices or those situations in those moments. Now, friends, we don't know how much time passed between verses 7 and 8. Likely not a whole lot of time. But I'm going to tell you, as they were trying to thread the leaves together to cover up what they now saw as shame, there was a sound that triggered something in them that struck them with fear like they had never felt before. And that fear drove them to hide from God God gave them not one instant or word of evidence to make them believe that, but their sin gave them an abundance of it to drive them away from him. And the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden said to them, you better run and you better hide. It made them think that they could run from God and hide. It made them think that they should run from God and hide. But the psalmist tells us this, where can I flee from your presence? Let me tell you something about hiding from God and running from God. Ask Jonah how that works out. 
It doesn't. Ever. What sin tells you is never an answer to the situation that it put you in. Only God can get you out from under sin. What we know is that the hearing they feared God, not because of what they knew about him, but because, hear me, what they had come to believe about him because of what they had come to believe about themselves. Too much and ill-ordered thinking of self always leads to wrong thoughts about God. You see, fear swelled when they heard the sound of the Lord. It was not a new sound, but something new caused from that sound today. Why? Well, because they had begun to choose to exist for me and not to exist for God. Their free choice, what we see here, is the first incident of what we will call today free will in this world. Now, this is going to offend some of you, and I'm fully aware of that, and I'm happy to speak with you later about that if you want to discuss it more. But there is one place in all of Scripture that we see free will most explicitly revealed, and it is in Genesis chapter 3. Where the opportunity for sin presented itself. Where the temptation for self-exaltation and pleasure was most prevalent. Where the opportunity to rebel against God and the possibility to become God crossed their path. Free will led them fully into that deception. They show where it is that free will leads us every time. Away from God to self-servitude. Instead of welcoming, they hid from God because they were afraid of what they knew about themselves. Listen to me, friends. Dark thinking. That sounds like this. Does God really know what he's talking about? Not sure he knows what he meant by that word. This is good for me. I I can do this. I, I can become like God. Dark thinking produces acts of disobedience that enslaves us to sin's fear and leads us to blame others to try and remove our own guilt and shame from that sin. And this is how we see sin condemning us. When sin infects us by our own acts of rebellion and disobedience, it affects us by the darkening of our thinking. And through the darkening of our thinking, it brings about its full effect within us, deception and full condemnation. Sin condemns to darken our mind by perverting the product, the content of what we think about. It darkens our mind in the processing, in the way we think about what it is that we think about. It darkens us in the pattern of our thinking. That's why we keep running back to the temptations that we've indulged in when we have stayed far from the truth of God's word and not hidden ourselves in him, but we continue to think about these things and the false promise that we found to be false. And yet we keep running too. See, that sin's dark deception controlling the pattern of our thinking to overwhelm us with opportunity that we might become like God. Even so much in the way that we think about what it is we are thinking about, this really isn't that bad. 
So often we think guilt is a feeling, but commentator K.A. Matthews helps us here when he says this, true guilt is never manifest primarily in feeling, but in knowledge. It was not the feeling of Adam and Eve that caused them to run from God, but rather underneath that feeling what they came to believe about God because of it. Yes, your feelings are often sin, but not in and of themselves. Feelings are always and only a product of thinking and believing. Listen to me, friends. Guilt from sin is, primarily, is not primarily about feeling, but it is the product of the knowledge of self in light of God. Hear me, hear me, hear me. That feeling of guilt and shame that you have is very real because of sin. But if you do not seek to get underneath why it is there, why you entered into it, what you believe that got you to the place that made you feel that way, you will not be able to be delivered from it. You'll keep treating the fever and you'll never get to the disease. And if in your following of Jesus you define your Christianity based on an emotion or a feeling and you run after that feeling and you soar when you have it and you plummet when you don't, you will never walk with Christ as a biblical Christian. You will walk near to him but miss him. You must get below the thrill and the euphoria of a feeling and you must ask, what must I know and believe in order to repent and receive? That is biblical Christianity. Consider how it is that sin works. And I'm gonna move through these very quickly. It manifests itself in every personal lack of moral conformity to God's law and it curses at the deepest level of our being, being to our very nature. See, far more than only a wrong act, sin manifests itself as a pure disposition of the heart. The orientation to self, selfishness, self-centeredness, this is the essence of sin because we are stealing glory from God. Sin defiles us. The principal way it defiles us is by the darkening of our thinking and perverting of that thinking. It darkens us by our knowledge of God to make us think wrongly about his character and about his nature. Zero, uh, Adam had zero reason to run from God except for his sin telling him inside, you should run and hide. And he chose to believe that. You see, sin darkens the mind about God so that when we fail to flee from it, as the New Testament repeatedly warns us to do, we expend our life in futility fleeing from God. Not only does sin defile us by darkening our knowledge of God, but also it defiles us by darkening our knowledge of self. Adam and Eve felt fear from shame and guilt because they thought differently about themselves. Their condition did not change, only the way that they thought about and perceived their condition. And they cared more about how they felt about self than they cared about how God felt about their rebellion against him. They loathed themselves, but they had no way to deal with their defilement. Friends, any explanation of sin without taking personal responsibility for it is a pathetic excuse to deny sin without any ability to stop the self-hate and the loathing of self. Sin 
is here to destroy you to the uttermost. And there is nothing you can do about it. You are, the Romans tells us, without excuse before God and without hope in this world under sin's slavery. It promises to satisfy personal longings, but it only creates deep self-loathing and shame. Sin not only defiles, sin deceives by darkening our knowledge of others and of the world. They spend countless hours trying to play God by comparing ourselves to others, and yet we don't compare ourselves to the only one who can truly help us, the law of God, which is perfect. And friends, when you compare yourself to the law of God, there's only one direction you move. You see the futility of anything that you can offer to measure up, and you can only then fall on your face before him and beg upon his mercy, of which you will find plenty, far more than you could have ever conceived or imagined. Sin causes us to fail to see things as they really are, but rather to see them as we need them to be. That's why it deceives us. Sin ingratiates and greedies us. Romans 1 goes on to tell us that it's when we fail to honor God and we fail to give him thanks that we fail to the temptation of sin. Sin steals our gratitude to God and it makes us greedier for all things for self. Number four, sin separates us from God. No one knew better than Adam and Eve but we don't want to believe about us. Sin separates us from God without excuse and without hope of reconciliation in our own ability, in our own strength. Fifth, sin wearies us to exhaustion. Jeremiah 9, 5 says this, they weary themselves through committing iniquities. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 11, when we reach that, when the men of the city tried to take the angels who had come to Lot's house in the form of men, The men of the city were beating on the door and demanding that Lot give those men to them so that they could enter into homosexual relationships with them. It tells us that Lot was saved by those men pulling him back inside and it says they wore themselves out by groping for the door. Listen to me, friends. Sin wearies us to exhaustion because the incessant striving that it demands upon us leads us all the way to hell in a pool of sweat-drenched exhaustion. Six, sin condemns eternally. Romans 5.16 tells us that there is judgment following one trespass. That the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Like I said, you don't have to give in to every temptation. It's just the one that you're most susceptible to that will condemn you forever. For the condemnation of sin is incurable and fatal. And friends, I want you to understand this morning that this is not the story of one man and one woman. This is the story of every man and every woman except Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, you can know the forgiveness that he gives. This is the foundation of the doctrine of original sin. And it tells us in Romans 5, 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You have one hope. His name is Jesus. And you can choose to confess your sin and repent of it and put your faith in him and receive forgiveness and cleansing and eternal life. Or you can continue in your exhausting, sweat-drenched striving to figure out how to fix yourself. And the Bible says you will never do that. There's only one way to avoid sin and its deception. And that's at the point of temptation, believer. Flee. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, if anyone thinks that he stands strong, let him take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. You're going to believe God or you're going to believe the lie of Satan? He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, and you will be, that's what God's telling you, he will always provide a way out so that you can run up under it and find your protection in the refuge of the rock that is Jesus Christ. The question today is this. Have you confessed your sin to God, the only one that can do anything about it? And said, God, I'm helpless, but because of Christ, I'm not hopeless. Will you come into my heart? Will you forgive me of my sin? Will you cleanse me? And will you live within me? Is that your prayer today? As the worship team returns, I'm going to ask you, have you come to the point in your life where you've ceased from the striving to fix your life and you've confessed your sin to God to give your life to him. If you haven't, I want to invite you to do that today. It's just personally acknowledging, confessing to him, comparing yourself to the only one that can do anything about it and asking him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to save you. Christian, I know this as well. For those of us who've already been saved, the question is this. Do you know where temptation continues to meet you? Do you know where Satan isolates you so that he can suspect God within you and lead you into full deception? If you don't, ask the Spirit to search you, to try you, and to show you so that when he meets you there, you can run and flee to the only one who will save you. Let's stand together and respond to the Lord.